ladies. Hello, I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And you do not know how much joy it brings me to be here with all of you today. Makes me so happy to be studying God's Word together with all of you. And what a beautiful day it is. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being a part of our study of 2 Samuel. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Aren't these great stories? And it's amazing how relevant they are. They took place 3,000 years ago, and yet they are so relevant for us in this day and time. Today, we're going to look at three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. And I love these chapters because it's kind of David's high point. You know, we said that in a simple outline of 2 Samuel, the first 10 chapters are David's triumph. Next week, with chapter 11 and 12, we're going to see David's tragedy, and that will lead to trouble for David through the rest of 2 Samuel. The tragedy, by the way, is of his own making. Today, though, we have seen, uh, we're going to see some more triumph of David. So far, we've seen the whole nation of Israel united under his kingship. We've seen uh, David's spiritual triumphs as he brings the Ark of God to Jerusalem, leading the people in worship for their great, living, personal God, Yahweh. And then last week, God made some incredible promises to David of a forever kingdom and an eternal ruler that would come from David's line, a descendant of David's, and he would be on the throne forever. This is ultimately Jesus Christ, son of David, coming to earth to uh, usher in God's kingdom, and then he's coming back again to reign forever over the earth. Now, kindness is a word that we all understand. And in these um, chapters that we're going to look at today, they're David's triumphs, but I also see an underlying theme of kindness. Kindness, God's kindness, unfailing kindness. Now, when we think of kindness, we uh, simple definition is kindness involves treating others in a considerate, hospitable manner, helping them in their need being faithful to them. It's closely connected with uh, compassion and with love. And when I think of the word kindness, it reminds me of a story of my daughter, Rachel. Happened many years ago. A bunch of us uh, were sitting around, moms and daughters, and Rachel was getting ready to go off to college. And I asked everyone, what is an important quality for you in a husband? What are you looking for in a husband? And so some of the gals said integrity, honesty. Some said a sense of humor or a spirit of adventure. And then Rachel said kindness. He has to be kind. And I thought, hmm, kindness. Now, she's been married to Mike for over 20 years, and you don't have to be with him very long before you see that kindness is one of his outstanding characteristics. He's kind to everyone, and he never has a critical word to say about anybody. And I think his kindness really stems from his love for the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for kindness is hesed, and this is often used with reference to God. It's talking about God's uh, unfailing kindness or his steadfast, loyal love, mercy, favor is all wrapped up in that. It's often used referring to God's steadfast, loyal love to his people, Israel. It's unfailing kindness. At the top of your verse sheet, I mean, at the top of your outline, I have a verse there. It's uh, David's Psalm 18, and he says this. This is the NIV translation. 
He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. By the way, ladies, um, 1 John, that's on your verse sheet 2.20, says this, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, that's the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. As believers in Jesus, we too have been anointed, and God shows his unfailing kindness to us as well. So we're going to turn to chapter 8, and we're going to see some of David's victories. Um, Chapter 8 is a summary, really, of David's victories over Israel's enemies to the west and the east and the north and the south, all around Israel. And where do we see God's unfailing kindness? Well, look at verse 6. The bottom of 6 there says, And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And we see that same phrase at the end of uh, verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God's unfailing kindness to David. So chapter 8 is a story of David's victories, but God is the true hero in chapter 8 because it is God who gives David the victory. Let's look at verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methag Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. So first David defeats the Philistines. That is a major longtime enemy of Israel. It's the Philistines fighting Israel when David kills Goliath. And it's in a battle with the Philistines when Saul and his sons are killed. And the Philistines go on to defeat Israel. So now David and his men are defeating the Philistines and they're pushing them way back to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea. And when it says there that they took Methag Ammah, that is probably a reference to their chief city called Gath. Let's go on to verse 2. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Moab, that's what we see next. That is um, a country to the southeast of Israel. And two things to notice in this verse. One, the Moabites become servants and they bring tribute, financial resources to Israel. And second, David's kindness to the Moabite soldiers by sparing one-third of them. That's kind of a tricky sentence, but you probably read this verse and thought, doesn't seem kind to me, seems a little harsh. But we need to remember that it was common practice in that day to kill all the enemy soldiers that were taken captive. But David shows mercy by sparing one-third of them. And when it says a um, full line, that means the longest line of soldiers were spared. Then we go on to verse 3. Let's continue. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And then if you drop down to 5, it says, And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hedadizar, and he brought them to Jerusalem. And from these cities of Hedadizar, King David took very much bronze. 
So here we see first that Zobah is defeated. That's up north of Israel by the river Euphrates. And that's very important because God, when he promised land to Abraham, the northern boundary was going to be the river Euphrates. You might uh, notice that on your verse sheet, Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, that's down south on your map, to the great river, the river Euphrates. Another thing to notice here, that this was an amazing victory. It was incredible because Israel only had foot soldiers. They had infantry. But you see here that Hedadezar had um, thousands of horses, horsemen. And he also had thousands of chariots. And so this would have been an amazing victory over all of that. Now, clearly, David is a mighty warrior, but God is bringing the victory to him. It would have taken the power, miraculous power of God to defeat an army like this. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 20, verse 7. This is a Psalm David wrote, and he says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He defeats them, and then he also defeats the Syrians. They're sometimes called Arameans, and you see them on the map. You see the city of Damascus and that country, Aram, on your map. Um, this is to the northeast of Israel. And this was very important when they were defeated because this north and northeast defeat would give Israel now control over the um, valuable caravan routes coming through Israel. Let's go on and look at verse 9. When Toy, king of Amath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So here we see Toy sending his son down to um, bless David and to bring gifts of uh, special um, metals. And I think this is really an example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, because had, uh, Dezar had been an enemy of Toy's, and now David defeats him. So Toy wants to just put himself, he doesn't want to be defeated, he just puts himself under subject to David, bringing him all of these precious metals. And David gives all of this to the Lord. He dedicates it to the Lord, and we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But first, I want to put up a map. Um, you've got it in your notebook, or you can look on the screen. Look at the countries all around Israel that David defeats as I read verse 12. He defeats them from Edom down south, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines on the west, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hedadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, up north. Now, these victories all around Israel, they would have resulted in peace and rest for Israel, God's unfailing kindness to David and to Israel, God's people. It would also mean prosperity for Israel. They would now have the ability to charge tariffs for these um, travelers passing through Israel, as well as the income that they were going to receive from the surrounding nations giving tribute to Israel. 
All of this we, would, we see in Israel because of these great victories. And we have one more victory. Look at verse 13. This is pretty interesting here. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then dropped down, it says, And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This is an interesting battle because we get a little insight into it from Psalm 60. Apparently, while David and his armies were fighting up north, the Edomites were coming against Israel in the south. And in Psalm 60, they're calling out to God and they're saying, hey, what's happening? Are you angry with us? They're coming to defeat us. But then they remember who God is. And in verse on your verse sheet, verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 60, we read this. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. It is God who will flatten the enemy, and the Lord does give victory to David over the Edomites and victory wherever he went. It's a good thing that it ends that section with that verse there. Victory wherever he went. David is a man after God's heart, and he recognizes that God gives the victory. And so David dedicates that gold and silver and bronze to the Lord, and it's going to be used in building the temple. Now, we learned last week that Solomon was the one who would build the temple at a later time, and so David is putting aside these precious metals that he gets to be used with the temple. David is triumphant militarily, and now we're going to see him politically triumphant in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Eliud, was the recorder, and Zadok, the son, and on and on we read these names of these people that David has put in um, certain necessary jobs, skilled men. He's dedicated to the, delegated to them these jobs so that the running of Israel would be done in orderly fashion. But the most important is that verse 15 that tells us that David reigns well over Israel. He rules with fairness and justice. David, God's chosen king, rules with kindness and righteousness. Righteousness. David is God's chosen king, so David's kingdom is God's kingdom. <clears throat> David is ruling with God's authority and under God's authority. So this is not David's achievement, but God's gift, his unfailing kindness to David and to Israel. And this is also a picture of foreshadowing of Jesus' victory over sin and death when he comes to earth the first time. And it's a picture of his righteous rule when he comes again. God's unfailing kindness to us results in spiritual victories for us. Think about it. Have you ever prayed for patience with your mother-in-law and you were patient for maybe 10 minutes? <laughs> victory. That's a victory. What about you've prayed for, pay, uh, for um, wisdom to be able to make good decisions and then you find out later that you made the very best decision possible? That's a victory. Have you ever prayed for courage and faith to overcome fear? And then you step out in a scary situation. That's a spiritual victory. Or maybe you've asked God or a godly friend to hold you accountable for those unkind words. And then someone tells you, thank you for the kind words you spoke to me. 
That is victory, spiritual victory. Ladies, look for those victories and remember those victories that God gives you and then thank him for his unfailing kindness. Chapter 8 gave us a picture of David's military and political victories through the unfailing kindness of God. And now we're going to see in chapter 9 a personal story of David where he shows unfailing kindness to Jonathan's son. And this chapter also gives us a picture of God's kindness to us through Jesus Christ. So let's start reading chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him, called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, I, I, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. <clears throat> now when we uh, read there the kindness of God, that is the Hebrew word hesed. That unfailing kindness, steadfast, loyal love, favor, mercy. And why is David trying to find someone from Saul's house to show kindness? For Jonathan's sake. We read there for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was David's very best friend, and he was also the son of Saul. And he's killed in battle with his father. Now, to understand what it means for Jonathan's sake, we have to go back to the story in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Some of you may remember it. David was about to be on the run from Saul. He was going to run and hide. Jonathan was there to say goodbye to him. And Jonathan knew that David was God's choice to be king, even though Jonathan was Saul's oldest son and would have been in line for the throne. Jonathan knows that God wants David to be king. And Jonathan wants what God wants. And so he, Jonathan, makes a covenant, a loyal uh, covenant vow of friendship with David before the Lord. And David agrees. He promises to show steadfast love to Jonathan and his family. In 1 Samuel 20, verses 14, we read this. Jonathan is talking, and he says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You must rem might remember in week one how David wept and mourned over the death of Jonathan. And now about 15 years has passed since the death of Saul and Jonathan, and David wants to keep his covenant promise to Jonathan. David will show unfailing kindness to Jonathan's son for Jonathan's sake. Now, it's important to notice that Jonathan's son is lame. He's crippled in his feet. Um, before we even hear his name, they're giving us this description. His name, by the way, is Mephibosheth. Now, we first heard about Mephibosheth in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, and we look, get a little more details about the story. We learn that when Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was five years old, and his nurse, in her attempt to carry him to safety, she drops him, and he becomes lame. Maybe he broke his feet, and they didn't heal properly, but now he is lame. And it might have been mentioned in chapter 4, because this disability would keep him from ever becoming king. He was disqualified because of the disability. Now, we look at people very differently today. We use words like challenge when we're describing someone with a disability. And we do, instead of disqualifying them, we do everything we can to make it possible for them to succeed. 
But in David's day, and even in the New Testament times, those with disabilities were ostracized. They were ridiculed. They were thought of as sinful. They uh, thought this was a punishment from God. You might remember that story of Jesus walking along with the disciples, and they come upon a blind man, and the disciples say, who sinned, the blind man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. He's blind to demonstrate God's glory, and then Jesus heals him. But in this day and time, Mephibosheth probably experienced much pain, physically and emotionally. Physically, feet probably hurt him. He couldn't run. He couldn't play. He couldn't climb trees. And emotionally, he was looked down upon or maybe overlooked altogether. He lived with shame, ridicule. And now David wants to show unfailing kindness, loyal love to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake, What a picture this is of God's kindness, his grace and favor to us for Jesus' sake. On your verse sheet, I've got John 3, 16. We know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Romans 5, 6 through 8 tells us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, out of his faithful love for us, we're needy sinners, broken. God sent Jesus to die for us, to take the penalty of our sin, that when we accept his grace, we are reconciled to God. We are made right with him for Jesus' sake. God seeks us to show us needy, lost sinners, kindness for Jesus' sake. Let's go on and look at verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. And then King David sent and had him brought to him. And then verse 6 says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage And David said, Mephibosheth, with an exclamation point. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. What does David think as he looks at Mephibosheth? I have a uh, painting, a picture of this. I love this picture because it looks like David is really reaching out to Mephibosheth. I wonder when he looked at him if he saw Jonathan's face. I wonder if it brought David joy or maybe tears to his eyes. I had a friend who went to be with the Lord many years ago, and whenever I see her sons, I feel great joy thinking about my friend Ruth, and it brings tears to my eyes still to this day. wonder if that's how David felt. And what did Mephibosheth think? Was he scared to death? Did he think this was going to be his last day on earth, that his life was going to end? Or maybe he remembered some of those stories that Jonathan might have told him about his dear friend, David. We don't know, but what we do read is what David's gracious, unfailing kindness does for Mephibosheth. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table always." 
So David says um, kindly, graciously, that he is going to restore to Mephibosheth all the land of Saul, his grandfather. He gives Mephibosheth this inheritance, and only King David could give this to him because as king, David got all of the lands of King Saul. So he's the only one that could give that back to Mephibosheth. And then he promises Mephibosheth that you shall eat at my table. Eat at the king's table. What provision that would be. What protection. What honor. He's no longer overlooked. He's esteemed. He's sitting at the king's table. Verse 11, if you look down at that, tells us that he will be like one of the king's sons. And this is our story as well. Did you see that there? Look at Luke 19.10 on your verse sheet. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus seeks us, and he saves us, and only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, only Jesus can save us, and we become daughters of the king with an eternal inheritance. Uh, Years ago, the Christ Chapel women had a retreat. This was many years ago. And our speaker told us a story about a gal named Lena. Now, Lena was poor. She couldn't read. She lived in the south, little southern town. But Lena loved the Lord. And one day, she was walking down the street of her town, and she was holding her head up high. And one of her friends came by and said, Well, Lena, what are you doing walking around so high and mighty? And Lena said, I'm a daughter of the Most High King, can't get no higher. I love that story. We are daughters of the Most High King. So let's look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. And he paid homage and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It looks here that David's res- uh, that Mephibosheth's response is um, in gratitude and humility. He says, who am I that you should show me such favor? Who am I? He's overwhelmed. And then in verse 9, David goes on and he tells Ziba um, that everything that was Saul's, I've given to Mephibosheth. And so you continue working the land, harvesting the produce, but it's all Mephibosheth's now. And Mephibosheth will be like one of the king's sons. That's in verse 11. Mephibosheth knows that he is undeserving of this abundant, gracious gift. David went above and beyond what he had promised to Jonathan. He had promised Jonathan just that was just to grant him life. And he gets so much more here. Mephibosheth's overwhelmed. He humbly responds with gratitude as he continually is going to experience the protection, the provision, and the honor at the king's table. We see David is a man after God's heart, and he shows God's uh, unfailing kindness to Mephibosheth. And I see myself in this story, and maybe you do as well, a needy sinner separated from God. Only the blood of Jesus can save us from death and redeem us to that eternal relationship with him right now and forever. We have an inheritance and glory As a needy sinner, God's kindness can lead us to humility and gratitude when we contemplate that. So, ladies, with grateful, humble hearts, let's share the unfailing kindness of God with others for Jesus' sake. 
So many ways to do that. Tell them the gospel story of Jesus. Be kind to those that are in need, giving resources, or maybe just a smile. So many ways to show the kindness of God to others for Jesus' sake. Let's go on and look now at chapter 10. This is a different chapter. And here we're going to see the kindness of David refused. Look at verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So it would seem here that David had some kind of alliance with Naosh, king of the Ammonites. And this probably took place when David was on the run from Saul in exile. Because you remember at the end of 1 Samuel, uh, David aligns himself with the Philistines and they have him living down south. And it was probably at this time that he made this alliance with Naosh because Naosh was an enemy of Saul and he sees David as an enemy of Saul because Saul's trying to kill him. So they make this covenant of peace. So now he has died, and um, David is going to send condolences to his son, Hanan. He's the son of Nahash, and he is now the king of the Ammonites. It's also probable that with this uh, condolences that David is extending this loyal, peaceful alliance with Hanan. But look what happens in verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and he shaved off half their beard of each and he cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and he sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king, this is King David, said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Hanan listens to the unwise counsel of his noble advisors. Now, we just read in chapter 8 that God was giving David victory in all the battles. So if they had a peaceful alliance with David, it would be better to go in that direction rather than to be suspicious of David and risk war with him. But Hanan listens to unwise counsel, and he acts unwisely. He humiliates the messengers of David. Now, beards to the Israelites were very important, um, so shaving half their face was embarrassing. It would be embarrassing for anyone, but it was especially embarrassing for those Israelites. And he purposely humiliates them by cutting off their uh, garments so that half of their body is exposed. In shaming David's messengers, they were dishonoring. They were humiliating David as well and all Israel, God's people. So Hanan's unwise actions lead to the humiliation of David and to Israel, God's people. And we're all thinking, uh-oh, trouble, trouble. Look at verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and then they had... A thousand more from Mekah, and the men of Tob sent 1,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. 
And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So we have Syrians uh, in one place and the Ammonites in another. And you have to wonder at what point Hanan realizes big mistake, big mistake. I have made David really mad, and now we have to go in battle against him. And even though he's young and unwise, he must know, he must have heard the stories of David's great victories because he hires mercenaries to help him fight uh, Israel. But this would be an exercise in futility. Oh, Hanan, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I've been there. There's been times that I have said or done something very foolish, very unwise, which led to trouble, big trouble. Maybe I received unwise counsel, or maybe it was just my foolish pride. And maybe you too can relate to this. So what's the lesson here? I think it can be a reminder to us to guard our words. Be careful that we don't give unwise counsel to others. And that's so easy to do. You know, you have a friend come over and you love her and she's having kind of a hard patch with her marriage and you say, you don't deserve that, just leave him. That might be unwise counsel, ladies. So what do we do? We need to stop and remember James, the, the wisdom that we got from James where it said, be slow to speak, quick to hear, but slow to speak. And before you make those decisions, What do you do? Let's pray about it. Let's take those to the Lord. Seek God's counsel or godly wisdom. And the godly counsel we get from others, does it line up with the word of God? Seek God's counsel and pray before you make decisions. So back to our story of Hanan. He prepares to battle Israel after dishonoring David, and he's hired mercenaries to help him. So let's see what Israel does in verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And then he says this, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. You know, Joab is an interesting guy. He's David's general of Israel's armies and he's a mighty warrior. He's also the guy who acted um, unwisely by avenging his brother's death and killing Abner back in chapter three, you might remember. And we're gonna see much more of him in the chapters to come in 2 Samuel. And sometimes it seems that uh, he wants God's best for David, but we're just never quite sure. But right here, This is Joab's best moment. He is amazing. He has a great battle plan. He divides them up against the two fronts. He wisely prepares Israel. He encourages the troops with wise words. These are the same words that God encouraged Joshua with back in Joshua 1. And most importantly, he is totally dependent on God. He knows that Israel's God's people, and this is God's land. And so it may be that God will give them victory, but he doesn't presume that. He says God will do what seems good to him. God gives the victory. And we read in verse 13 that God does. 
So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. God gives them the victory, but it's not quite over yet as you read the rest of it. And maybe you were like me thinking, seriously, Seriously, you guys are going to try to fight David again? But that's what happens. The Syrians, they were the hired mercenaries. They are going to go uh, up against David one more time. And I'm thinking, why would this be? Well, maybe if you remember back to chapter 8, David defeated Hadadezer. He was the king up north in Israel. And uh, he had the Syrians come and help him. And then, of course, David defeated them as well. And so now, maybe out of revenge, they want to battle David one more time. And this time, the Syrians are going to call on Hadadezer and his troops to come help them. But we're going to see to no avail, because David himself leads Israel's troops to victory Look at verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and he crossed the Jordan and he came to Helam. And the battle rages on there. And then we get down to verse 19 and it says, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Once again, God gives David and Israel a crushing victory, and all of them become subject to David. A couple things stand out to me in chapter 10, lessons for us. First, do not overlook or refuse the kindness of God. Now, salvation is the greatest unfailing kindness of God to us, and we can thank him every day for our eternal life, that eternal relationship with Jesus But even more, look for God's kindnesses every day, those small kindnesses and those big kindnesses. I want to wake up tomorrow and say, God, show me, make me aware of your unfailing kindness to me today. And if you are here, I'm just going to say this, if you are here and you've never accepted the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, let me say, do not refuse this kindness of God. Do not refuse it. Give your heart to Jesus. Second lesson, do not let the negative responses of others deter you from showing kindness. Now, David was uh, defending God's honor as he went uh, against the Ammonites in battle. But Jesus tells us when he comes to, um, uh, to earth, he tells us in the New Testament, to love your enemies and to do good for those who hate you. And Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So ladies, regardless of how others treat you, let's show them the unfailing kindness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are great and powerful worthy of our praise, and yet, Lord, you show us unfailing kindness every day. You show us unfailing kindness through um, Jesus Christ saving us from our sin. Lord, I pray that all of us here would just bow down before you, praise you, thank you with humble hearts. And Father, as we think of your kindness,
kindness to us, may we go, show, go out and show others unfailing kindness to them. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.